you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. As we continue our study walking through the book of Ezra, walking through this Old Testament book. We'll read here, beginning with chapter 3, verse 1. So chapter 3, verse 1. May the Spirit of God illuminate his word for us this morning. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, where fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day Required, And after the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians of Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shetiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Amen. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Amen. Now, as we read these verses, we see after many years in exile, and according to God's good plans and purposes, the peoples are now back in Jerusalem. Now that is certainly good news. They're back home. 
Yet we don't look on as we're reading these verses. We're not to just look on at these as mere historical recordings, mere historical happenings. We know and say, even with this passage, that is what is being demonstrated here is not merely history. It is, but it is a demonstration of God's goodness, of God's faithfulness, and God's mercy. That now many, or perhaps more accurately, a remnant of the people of Israel have returned from exile among the nations, from among the nations. Yet as we see that, it matters that we ask, what were they returning to? Was it a land where everything was just fine? Was all well? You know, was everything going well? Was God being worshipped in the land they were returning to? Were things like they were before they left? Were people all around just praising God? If you know the history and even the context of what's going on here, we could say very readily, far from it. (laughs) They were not returning to a land filled with Jews and the worship of God. But post-exile, the land was a land filled with a variety of peoples. Peoples worshiping gods of their own hands and of their own making. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, that would be pretty hard. That would be awfully bad to have to go back there, you know, to, to that kind of context where you're facing all these people around you who are not worshiping God, and this really was the land that God had promised you. Well, you're right, it, it would be hard, but the truth is, If we're honest, and you ought to be honest this morning, it's very similar to where we are right now, to where we are living right now, to our culture today, to your and to my experience here in America. For example, what will you do after this service ends? After we gather together to lift our hands, to lift our hearts in praise of the great and the only God who has made all things and for whom every single person in all the earth exists, what will you do? Well, you will go out from here and you will scatter going into a world filled with what? Filled with people who are doing the very same thing. They're worshiping gods of their own hands, of their own making. Now, lest lest you feel proud of yourself here and say, well, look at me, look at us. Well, I would say even if you grew up in a Christian home, all of us were at one point doing the very same thing. We were bowing down and worshiping all variety of false God's false things that we loved far more than God himself. So it's not 
a context even far from you. Or we might even think of it this way. You might think of missionaries even. You know, those who go out into foreign lands among peoples who might not only, you know, worship other gods, but perhaps they don't even know anything about the Bible. They may not know anything about Jesus. They may not know anything about what God has done. And again, as reluctant as we might be to say so, there are many right now in America that we could say the same thing about as well. There are people in America who have not heard about Jesus. So you see, in saying all of that, we're not that far from the context that we're seeing here with the Israelites. This gives us something of a glimpse into what they're going through. Yet even so, what do we know? We have seen as we've walked through the book of Ezra so far that God, he has stirred his people up. And what did they do? Not all of them. In fact, very little of the people returned to Judah and to Jerusalem. And they returned to come to rebuild the temple. And now here we see in chapter 3, the work begins. The rebuilding of the temple of God. So that in verses 1 through 6, we see then the first part of this chapter. The altar is rebuilt. The altar is rebuilt. So right away, we notice how unique all of this is. It says there in verse 1, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So they arose as one man. And what is that? mean does that mean they're all men and no it means they were of one mind they were of one purpose they were united around this common task to do what God had called them to do now they didn't arise though for any old reason though they didn't arise united around their common sports team right you might have enjoyed the Super Bowl last week. I know we did. But that's not why they arose. They didn't arise to support the Chiefs or the Eagles. They didn't arise united around their identity as Americans. That's not what is unifying them. Nor did they arise because they were united around a common enemy. They didn't do it for any of those reasons. And neither should we, by the way. But they arose united to honor God. They arose united to honor God. Now we could read all of this, all that we just read as I read all those verses and miss what all of this is really about. All of this talk about, you know, offerings and feasts in the temple. We might just kind of focus in on all of those things which we will be talking about here in a moment but all of their dealings here and all of their work and we may just say well way to go Israel I mean look at you good job great team effort (laughs) 
I mean, this, this certainly is giving us some lessons on team or organizational work. Well, let's draw some lessons then. For let's, let's figure out how we as a church need to be good teammates and work together, right? I mean, is that what this is emphasizing here in these verses? If we say that, we would be missing what this is really about. This is about God, and it's about the worship of God. If you miss that here, you are missing everything of what this chapter is about. How quickly and how often we can make the Bible just another text that we use to just glory in ourselves. I mean, is that not so often what we do that we would just come to these verses and say, all right, teamwork, that's the lesson. All right, leadership, that is the lesson. And just make it all about us. But friends, he is the why behind all of this. Including what we're doing right now, this moment, this service, amidst the fellowship, amidst the congregational worship, amidst the preaching of the Word of God, all of this is about God. Don't miss God this morning. Do you realize that in God's orchestrating and plans that he has you here this morning, that you would hear his word, that you would be affected by it? Or perhaps if you don't know Christ this morning, you would see your need for him and flee all the false hopes of this world and say Christ alone is the sure and steady anchor. God has you here this morning. For God, because you were made for God. And this service is all about God. So out of a desire to honor God then, we see they left their homes. We see it in verse 1. Now this is an aspect of this passage that we may just skip over. I mean, the only way that they could gather as one man in Jerusalem is to do what? Right? Right? leave their homes behind. It meant their homes, the homes that they had just recently, you know, reoccupied or built, that they would have to be left alone, right? And just think about this for a moment. That means it would have been left alone without a ring camera there, you know, without a security system, without all these other things that we have today, right? And so they would have left their home among a foreign people where they very likely did not have people around them they trusted or even probably even knew at all. So what would that mean of this then, of their leaving their homes? What would they have, had, what would they have needed to do to say, all right, let's all go as one man to Jerusalem, 
and leaving our homes behind. It would mean they would have to they would have needed to trust God. There is no aspect of what we're seeing in these verses that does not relate to God or to trusting God. They would have had to trust him that those homes that they're leaving behind, that somehow, some way, God will care for those. And if he doesn't, he has brought us back to this land. He will take care of that too. And as we see that, that isn't just a point for them, though. It's for us. Again and again in Scripture, we are called to wait on the Lord, to trust in the Lord. And again and again, we are called and we are told not to be anxious, not to fear for what you will eat, right? Or what you will drink, right? Or what you will wear. But what are you to do? You are to trust God who has given you and who gives you all those things, the home you have, the car you have, the things you have, the job you have. And you are to trust God even as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, right? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, dear saint, I don't, I don't know everything that may be going on in your life right now, but I can guarantee you, you do have this sure and steady anchor that you can stand on today, regardless of what's going on in your life, that you can trust God. You can trust Him with all those things. You can trust Him with your life. You can trust Him with everything. And again and again, even in the things that you're going through right now, what God is saying, dear child, will you trust me even now? Even with that? Even when you don't know how you're going to get your next bill paid. Will you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trust your whole life to Him? I mean, this is what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're leaving all that. They don't know if they're going to be able to get it back again aside from God. And they're saying, let's go and do what God has called us to do. So you see how deeply they're trusting God here. And so they were trusting God And they were intent upon upholding the word of God. And we see this in verses 2 through 4. We actually see it a couple times in these verses. It says in verse 2, They built the altar of God, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses. Verse 4, They kept the feast of booze, as it is written written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. So we see the people of Israel here, they are being careful to follow God's word. We see here this intent 
from the people to follow and to honor God, to honor his word and to do everything in accord with his word. Now, just as you see that, see how different that is from before. Right? What were they doing before? Well, they were right there with other people, the nations, right? Just bowing down to these gods. All right, come join us. Let's worship all these other false gods. Come on, I'll join you too. You have a new God? Let me go over here and worship that God as well. That's what they were doing. Pre-exile. They had been turning away from God's word rather than turning to God's word. Now, as I say that, that may, might well be a temptation. And I don't even have to say it might well be a temptation. It will be a temptation for the rest of your life to turn from God's word and not do it. Even right now, this morning, you're hearing me say this and you're saying, nope. I'm sorry. I love this thing right here much, much more. And I'm just going to continue clinging to it and bowing down to it. I am not going to take heed and hear God's word this morning. Yet you need to see that for what it is when it happens and when that happens because it, it will happen. It's not happening because God's word is false. Because you're wanting something more than God. You're wanting something more than the truth. What's happening is you are beginning to fashion something. You're beginning to fashion a God of your own liking. And you're giving it a higher authority than God and his word. And so it's right that you ask, will I believe the truth or will I believe a lie? Those are the options. Please hear me this morning. Those are the options. There is no other option. That's exactly what we see in Genesis 3. The option isn't, well, maybe I should believe the serpent here. Like, because he's telling me truth, he has half-truths in there. Or should I believe God who is really telling me the truth, who has made me, loves me, has created me for his glory. He knows everything I need. I can trust him completely in every single aspect of my life, but instead, I'm going to trust this sneaky snake over here that I've never even really met before and is telling me all these crazy things. But that's what we do. Will I believe and do God's word or will I bow and worship to gods of my own making? So along with rising, arising united to honor God, which is what we see them do here, they arise also united to worship God. They arise united to worship God. 
as I said before, worship is pervasive throughout these verses. It says in verse 1, when the seventh month came. Okay, you're like, okay, I don't see worship there. <laughs> what do you mean seventh month, you know? I don't know how, what that has to do with worship. So what's so significant about that, verse 1, the seventh month? What well, explains why we see much of what we see here and all that they're doing here even. So according to the Jewish calendar, the seventh month was the month of Tishri, a month abounding with the celebration of a number of feasts. The Feast of Trumpets, one you may know, may know well, the Day of Atonement, <laughs> and the Feast of Booths. You don't need to take my word for it. You can go on your own. Look at a Leviticus 23, where all of that is set forth. And so it is, in view of the seventh month, we see they came to this month under the leadership of Jeshua the high priest and Zerubbabel. They, in, all, in light of all that, they resolved to act. And so they arose united to worship God with offerings. So having built the altar... They offered burnt offerings on it. Now, as we have seen again and again, as we're coming to the book of Ezra, we're rather detached from the things that we're perhaps hearing even right now. Like, what in the world is that? I mean, what is a burnt offering? What is all this talk about feast of booze and so on? Where burnt offerings were offerings, where the whole offering or the majority of the offering was consumed as a pleasing offering to the Lord. It was an offering to atone for sin and allowed the worshiper to draw near to God in worship. And so with each burnt offering, they were essentially saying before God every time, I am yours, I'm a sinner, and I am yours All of me, you can have it all. My life is yours, which is why in Romans 12, verse 1, then Paul, he says that you are to what? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices as your spiritual worship. And so they did this, and they did this morning and evening. Verse 3. And so they gave those burnt offerings... But they also gave another offering here, free will offerings in verse 5, which we heard about in chapter 2, if you remember. What are those? Were there offerings given freely of their own accord? And so they arose, united to worship with those with offerings, and they arose, united to worship God with feasts. So along with the appointed feast, we see the Feast of Booths specifically mentioned here. And again, right, you, you have that down. You got the Feast of Booths down. You understand what that is? Well, we need to fill in the gaps here because all of this is distant to us. Now, this was 
a feast celebrating God's goodness. It was a feast rejoicing in his great deliverance of Israel, right? Out from where? Out from the Exodus. And it solemnly remembered the time that they went through the wilderness in booze or tabernacles following the Exodus. And so over seven days they would build booze then made up of light branches and leaves to live in for the week. I mean, as you read all this, just think about and see how all-encompassing this worship is, right? I mean, it is taking over their days, morning and evening. It's taking over their weeks. Then as we come to the New Testament, what do you think God is calling you to do? That's an aside. (laughs) Not an aside, but an aside. So along with that, we see it says that they also celebrated the new moon. Verse 5. Now, they didn't have anything to do with worshiping the moon or anything like that. This is a time of recognizing God's purposes and God's sovereignty over the month, even over all of their days. And they did that at the beginning of every new month. Do you see <laughs> how all-encompassing this is? How every aspect God is even, he's calling for their eyes to be upward. He's calling for their lives to be his. He's calling for your life and every sphere of every aspect of your life to recognize God's sovereignty, his care. That he is, you are being called in all things to worship him. Amen. And so you see just how God-centered they were. At least how they were to be. How God had been, how he had been orienting them not to look to themselves and not to look to idols. Not to look to their own hands, not to look to their own plans. But to look to him again and again being reminded, oh, it's, it's the first day of the month. It's time for the new moon. God is sovereign over my days, my time, and everything. So essentially they were confessing in all this. We need God. He delivered us. He is in control. He is good. He is our Redeemer. And so day after day, their eyes were aimed upward. And this is how the work begins. It begins with honoring God and with the worship of God. And so also then, dear saints, surely then may we also arise to honor and worship God in the fear of God every single day that God gives us until what? We go to be with him, which then we will do what? We will honor and worship God forever with joy upon joy upon joy. For the eons of time to come. Each Sunday is a day for us to gather and to glory, which is what we're doing and what I hope you're doing right now as we're walking through the Word of God. 
You don't just hear this passively. You hear it actively, and you worship God as you see these things, as you hear these things. Each Lord's Day is a day to rejoice. All eyes upward. See what God has done and is doing and is calling us then to go and do. Which is why we don't end there with just the gathering, but then we go and scatter as worshipers going out as those who don't fear men, but we fear God. Now, why would I add that last part? Arising to honor God and worship God in the fear of God. Well, as they built the altar, it says in verse 3, Fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. But what did they do? (laughs) Did that keep them from building the altar? They built the altar anyways. They made their offerings anyway. And why did they do that? Because they feared God. God. They trusted God. They were looking to his word. They were looking to God and not to man. No less are we being called in our day to rise and to honor and worship God, not in the fear of man, but in the fear of God. Let's just be honest. I think it's much more true of us than we know that we have become awfully fearful of those around us. How fearful we have become as believers. Would you do what Israel would have done? Would you have left your home? And I mean that, not theoretically. Would you have done that? Your car and everything else, knowing it may not be around when you come back. Would you continue to worship if week after week there's the threat of someone coming in here and going to kill you? And if you think that is, maybe you're like, okay, well, I'm fine with me dying. Well, what about your children Are you okay with that? Would you still worship God in the fear of God and make your offerings? Of course, we're not in the Old Testament. But hopefully you know what I mean. That's what I'm talking about. How fearful we have become. We tremble before the God of secularism. Is it so surprising then that we so often bow down to it? We fear before the God of postmodernism. Your truth, my truth. Does anyone have a truth truth? Right? We're just bowing down to the God of relativism of postmodernism before the God of science. What's being said there? We're saying science has a higher authority than what? God's word. And in that way... 
we're bowing down to a God that we have made before the God of religion. And I think we would have said that one very readily as we see all variety of religions around us. But we so often don't see the idols that we have formed and we are bowing down to. Like the God of self. You're the king. Do you want to know why I think a lot of... I mean, there's been conflict in the church (laughs) throughout history. You look at the Bible, you'll see it. But especially so in America. Because we have a lot of people bowing down to the God of self. I am king over this church. How dare you? Well, if you remember from last week and the time I shared the vision with you, there is only one king over this church, and it is not any one of us. It is only Jesus Christ. Amen. So the God of self are bowing to the God of entertainment. I like TV shows. I like movies. I watch a lot. But just taking all that in, and you just receive it, and then what happens? You begin bowing to the God of secularism and to the God of postmodernism and the God of science and so on. Bowing before the God of emotion. Many of you don't even know how much your emotion is your authority in your life. And you'll see it immediately when the word of God comes and challenges it. And you'll maybe go with your emotion. Or bowing, here's a big one. Bowing before the God of comfort. Now that will keep you in the fear of men. Because you will lose your home. You will lose your job. You will lose all those comforts you so love if you wisely, carefully, by the power of the Spirit of God, live in the fear of God. But what do they do? As they saw the people, they saw the people and worshipped anyway. (laughs) So may you and I also not in the fear of God, but in, not in the fear of man, but in the fear of God. And as you do, do so as they're making all these offerings. You see offerings, you see feasts, you see new moons and all these things. We do not make those kind of offerings today. We do not make offerings and celebrate these Old Testament feasts, but we unashamedly honor and worship God in Christ Jesus. In Him there are no more offerings to be given. But as Hebrews says, as Mike read, and as Hebrews 9, 11-12 says, Christ has secured for us an eternal redemption. There are no Old Testament feasts for us to celebrate because as Paul said in Colossians 2.17, Talking about all the feasts, the Sabbath and so on. He says, these, those right there, the the feasts and all those things, these are a shadow of the things to come. But what does the shadow point to? 
The substance belongs to Christ. All of them are pointing to Jesus Christ. And so if you miss that, you're missing Jesus for all these feasts. So unashamedly before the nations, through Christ, worship Draw near to God. Realize that you have been redeemed. Your life is no longer your own. But it's His. Now, if you are here and you know Christ this morning, you know God and worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, as Philippians 3.3 says. as you see the Israelites doing this so uncommonly as they do in their history, may we though arise also, dear saints, in our day to honor God and worship God in the fear of God. Do not fear, but trust Him. Believe His word and do it. Yet we see that this isn't all we see here, isn't it? There's more. So along with rebuilding the altar, we see in verses 7 through 13, the foundation of the temple is laid. So under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the work is begun. The work of rebuilding the temple of God. And they're not slack in their work Either they don't take this work lightly, rather they see it for what it is, and they take it on as a holy work. And that it was. It cannot be just done in any old way they may like. It must be done in the way that God has prescribed. And so like David, in First Chronicles 23, the, they appoint Levites to supervise the work of the rebuilding of the temple. That it would be done in all holiness before the holy God. That it would be done not simply in view of a building, but in view of the living God who is uncompromisingly holy, who will strike down those who compromise His holiness for even a second. Right? Uzzah. You look that up on your own. Yet as we soon see, along with it being a holy work, it is also a different work. Verses 10 through 13. So after the foundation of the temple is laid, the priests take their trumpets and the Levites their cymbals and they get up and they praise the Lord. (laughs) And yet at the same time, As they do this, it must have been just quite an odd scene, seeing all these things. While they were praising the Lord, many of them, they were just there weeping. And they were not weeping out of joy. Because as they're seeing all this, they're seeing that this is not the same. All this is different. Now, post-exile... It's just not Solomon's temple. It's not as grand. So right at the beginning, before they even had the 
temple built. They see something is different about this. It is lacking in some significant way. And so it's a holy work. It's a different work. Yet even so, it's a testimony to God's faithful work. And this is why they sing responsibly, responsibly here in verse 11. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So amidst all of this, they see who all of this is about. It is about God. God is faithful and all of this displays his faithful, unfailing Covenant, love, post-exile, God's promises endure. So what a strange and wonderful sight it would have been. A scene intermingled with joy and sadness. Now as strange as that might have been, there is much here that we can relate to. Even this Sunday morning, even this Lord's Day, many of you already know exactly what I'm talking about. You are coming here rejoicing, yet there is weeping, there's grieving, there's struggle that you're dealing with. So as we engage in the work of the Lord, In the same way, until all things are made new, we also will experience this intermingling of joy and sadness. Even in our services like this. Right now, among all the peoples of all the world, of all tribes, of all nations, we have reason to rejoice, right? The Lord has come. Yet, as we look out over God's creation, as we look out over history, as we look out over God's world, we still grieve, don't we? We grieve over those in our own family that we've lost. Lord, come quickly. We grieve over those in Syria and Turkey. The 40,000 plus people dying and many likely who did not know Jesus Christ. Who go into an eternity separated from God forever. And so we grieve over them in this service. We grieve over disease and sickness that just continually keeps Coming strokes that happen to our bodies, heart attacks, cancer that keeps coming again and again and again. We grieve over the devastation of war after war after war that never ceased to come. We grieve over the conflicts of sin that we experience even among us and our families. We grieve over the false worship all around us. We grieve over the many, even the billions of people right now who apart from someone going and sharing the gospel with them 
that they will die and be separated from God forever. And you heard me right. Not millions, billions. So we grieve now. And we long for all things to be made new. Finally and fully and completely. So it is, in the midst of all that, we have Ezra 3. In the midst of that, we hear the word of God today calling us to take hold of God's word. To take hold of God's promises. To take hold of the character of God. Not one of his promises will fail. We take hold of his word in the gospel and we say, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Christ has come and we know he will come again. And when he does, he will make all things new. But until then, Let's take these words to heart. And may we go on. May we go on honoring God, worshiping God, rejoicing in God, and longing for God in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, we come honestly before you May we come honestly before you. May we come with all these struggles that we've even seen this morning. We may have even seen in our own hearts, in our own lives, that we would say, Lord, yes, I am struggling with that. But Lord, I trust you. I grieve and I rejoice. I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So I will worship. I will rejoice. I will honor you. I will long for God in the fear of God. So may you help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.